welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. Imagine that you were going to meet your boyfriend for dinner. If you're a guy, I know that takes a little more work, but you know, imagine as you arrive on the roadside out the restaurant, you come on an accident. It's a trauma scene unfolding. There's wrecked cars, and you think that you recognize one of those vehicles. And when you stop to investigate, you hope that you're wrong. But to your horror, what you find is your boyfriend's bloody, lifeless body lying on the ground. And then a paramedic comes to you and gives you the worst news ever that your boyfriend has died, the love of your life is gone. And as you turn away from this horrific scene and you begin to break down, what you don't see is your boyfriend pop up from the ground, this guy who's supposed to be dead, and run over to an ambulance where he opens the door and comes back with balloons and a ring. Yep, you know it. This is how a Russian man named Alexei Baikov proposed to his girlfriend, Irina Kolakov. Now, in order to have the effect that he wanted, in order for this to come off as a totally real scene, he bought in 100%. He hired a movie director, a screenwriter, stuntmen, makeup artists, and scripted out this whole thing so that when she came on this scene, she would believe that it was an accident. And this is what he said. He said, I wanted her to realize how empty her life would be without me. And how life would have no meaning without me. He's a special guy, huh? And guess what? When he got down on his knee, still covered in fake blood, and asked her to marry him, she said, yes. Yep. Yep. So I guess there's someone for everyone, you know? And (laughs) that I don't know. How long did it last? I don't know. So we all have these deep desires in our hearts. We have, for one, the deep desire to be loved. But we also have a deep desire in our heart to love, to love others. And in some cases, apparently that means loving someone who begins their life with you by giving you a case of PTSD by pretending that they're dead. Well, today we're continuing our series of messages for the tent called Summer of Love. And we introduced this last week by talking about how the Summer of Love was in 67. It was when a bunch of young people, hippies, descended on the Haight-Ashbury district and this whole movement began. And it was really about rejecting the race riots of the time, rejecting the violence of of war, rejecting some of the consumerist values of the, the nation at the time. And what these young people wanted to do was they wanted to be about something different. They wanted to be about love. And that really was a good thing. And as we also mentioned, the problem was, however, that this ideal of love kind of got lost in all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? They were also a part of that movement. And even when love was lifted up, 
there were real questions about, well, exactly what does that mean? Exactly what does love mean? Partly because, as we touched on last week, there is a lot of confusion in our world at times about exactly what love is. And also because, as we, we, we also mentioned, in this world, a lot of the love that we see falls short, sometimes desperately short of what we would hope for, kind of like the summer of love did. And a lot of love in this world we see uh, is, is selfish. It's, it's shallow. It's conditional. Love so easily in our world gets twisted into something that really doesn't resemble love at all. And not to be judgy, but maybe like making someone who loves you think they're dead. You know, I mean, maybe. So last week we began with the fact that love is at the heart of our faith. And we talked about the kind of love that God calls us has for us and calls us to, that it's a different kind of love than we so often see in this world. Um, the, the love that God has for us is a, and calls us to is an unconditional, self-sacrificing kind of love that always wants the best for the other. That word agape in Greek, the kind of love that God has. And as a part of that message, we really focused on how, how deeply God loves us. But today we're going to focus on the fact that we also have this deep desire in our hearts to love, to love others. And we're going to see that that deep desire is actually a God-given part of how we're made. God made us to love, made us for love, and God calls us, we're called by Jesus to love God first and foremost. And we're going to talk about what effect that has on us. So pray with me, friends, and we'll get into this. Lord, we pray that you would speak deep words about love to us, about um, what it means to love you, and about how that shapes our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this God-given gift of the capacity, the ability to love. Um, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start this morning where we started last week with that famous passage from Matthew 22 about the greatest commandment. Now you can find all of the scripture for our message today in, on your song sheet. So be sure to, to take a look there. And our first one again is Matthew 22 uh, verses uh, 34 through 40. And so it says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. These are the religious leaders of the day. They're trying to trap Jesus. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So we began with this last week, this passage that, that shows how love is at the heart of our, of our faith. So when asked by the Jewish religious leaders, which of the commands of the Old Testament was the greatest, Jesus says here, and you know, we talked about the fact that the Jews had such an intense desire for the scripture the, the Torah. They said Torah is life. And so in a way, it was like they were saying, what's the, not just what's the greatest command, but what's the meaning of life? And so Jesus' response is it's to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And as I mentioned last week, these words of Jesus here, they're a quote from uh, 
Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the, the central prayer of Israel. It was a prayer that every Jew prayed twice a day. And, and Jesus' answer here was a fantastic answer because uh, who could argue with the central prayer of Judaism? Who could argue with the call to love God as the first and greatest commandment? And so we see that Jesus goes on to call us to love others here, and we're going to dig deeply into that next week. But first and foremost, Jesus says here that we are to love God. And the question that we might have is, well, why? Why are we to love God? Over the years, one of the suggestions that I've heard people make, um, often detractors of religion, is something like this. What is God? Some kind of an egomaniac who demands our love and devotion because he needs it so much? But nothing could be really farther from the truth. If we think that God needs our love, then we've got too big of an opinion of ourselves and too small an opinion of God. And so I want us to look um, at, at our Really, essentially our first scripture for this morning, which is Acts 17, 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And here's 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So I hope you're, you're hearing what that Scripture says, it says God doesn't need anything, anything at all. Theologians refer to this attribute, attribute of God as aseity. Aseity means that God is totally self-sufficient and that he doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. And you actually see this sort of implied in the very first uh, verse of the Bible. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning there was God, and then it gets into the creative act of God. And you realize that before that, nothing else existed. There was just God. So clearly God was not depending on any other thing because only he existed at that point. And so what this means, this idea that God doesn't mean anything, it involves kind of a hard truth sometimes for us, maybe the first time we realize it. And that hard truth is this, God doesn't need anything, even us. God doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he was lonely or needed love and devotion or anything like that. There's nothing that we could ever do or give to God that he needs because God doesn't need anything. So then we're still with that question. Well, if God doesn't need us, then why did God create us? Let's take a look at another passage. This is... Uh, Isaiah 43, 7. So in this passage, God is calling his people to trust in him and not to be afraid in the face of their enemies. And so in the midst of that, he says them, to them this. He says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. He's saying, look, trust in me. You can rely on me. And remember, it's partly because I made you. But in the midst of, of saying that, why does it say that God created us? For his glory. Yeah. Um, now, let me explain that. God is awesome. And when you're awesome, you do awesome things. And those awesome things illustrate 
or, or your glory. They illustrate how awesome that you are. Not out of ego, but simply out of truth. Have you ever seen somebody just do something awesome because it was the right thing to do and you just thought, man, that's an amazing thing done by an amazing person. Well, that's just a kind of an illustration of, of the even greater work of God. So although we're primarily made for God's glory, in that same passage in Isaiah, where it says we're made um, for God's glory, just a few lines before that in verse four, God mentions another reason that we're made. And he's talking to the people and he says, it's because you're precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. You can trust me because I made you and I love you. So God also made us for love because love is awesome and it brings glory to God. That's why we're made. We can see this actually in, embedded in the very verse that talks about our creation. Uh, Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's one of the most kind of profound verses in the Bible. It says that we are made in the image of God. Every person, every life has, has a sanctity to it because every human being is stamped with the imprint of, of God's image, of, uh, of his glory on us. And, and just the idea that God would um, make us like him, that's what it means to be made in God's image. Just the idea that God would make us like himself, that we would be reflections of God is a sign of God's great love for us. And then the fact that we're made like God implies that very ability, the capacity that we have to love, which is unmatched in creation. Whatever, you know, I know some of you, are, when I say that our ability to love is unmatched in creation, some of you are going, I don't know, my dog loves me a lot. Um, and it's true. I mean, animals do have some ability to display love and affection, but really it's it's it pales in comparison to the ability and capacity that God has made us with to be loved and to love. So we're actually made in that way. Love is good. God doesn't need our love, but love is good and more love is better. And God takes pleasure in our love for him and in our his love for us. So I want to look at another verse. I know we're, we're hitting a lot of verses today, but I really want to lift this up. This is a really short one. Ephesians 5.1 says, for, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. This verse, like, like so many verses in scripture, it actually just sort of nonchalantly lifts up the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us, the kind of, of love that God has with us. It's not the love and devotion of a slave. That's not what God asks for. It's not the love and devotion of a servant or of a loyal subject or of a, of a minion or, or whatever. God wants a deep relationship with love, of, of love from us. Like family. That's how deep it is. Like the kind of love that children have for the very best sort of parent that you could imagine. So when we put our faith in God, God adopts us into his family and becomes our father. 
God has this deep love for us, this desire for us to love him deeply, but to love us in a way that is genuine and real. And that's actually why we have a choice in the matter, if you think about it. God could simply have made us without free will, without the choice to love him. God could have made us much like robots, but God wanted something real. And real love can't be forced. It can only be freely given. And in all of this, again, we can see a clear sense that we're made for love. We're made to know and love God. But again, well then, why did God make us if he doesn't still, if he doesn't need our love? Well, as we've touched on, that first piece is because that God made us for love and that brings glory to God. But in reality, when it comes to us, the reason that God calls us to love him is because loving him is what's best for us. God calls us to love him because what loving him is what is the very best thing for us. Think about that for a moment. Remember that word we looked at last week, agape? It describes a kind of love that always wants the very best for this other person that you love. And that's how God loves us. God wants the very best for us. And the very best thing for us is that we would love God. Because when we love God, it orients our entire lives. It means that we have a knowledge of and a relationship with the creator of the universe, our God. It means that we begin to be filled with his love. Now, God loves us whether we return that love or not. But when we begin to love God back, we begin to experience the fullness and the depth of God's love in a way that we never have before. Loving God causes us to see and to understand things about the world, spiritual truths that we would never understand if we didn't love God. Loving God causes us to do things that we would never do apart from the love of God. Uh, Loving God causes us to be things that we would never be without the love of God. We can never actually become fully who God has created us to be without loving God. Loving God makes us more loving. Loving God helps us to know what love ought to look like in a world where loving others often gets twisted and distorted. And I'll add that even though God doesn't need our love, he wants it because he wants us, each one of us that he's made. As that scripture also said, we are precious to him. So what does it mean to love God? I could write 20 volumes on that. I'm going to lift up five things today. What does it mean to love God? And the first one is something I've already touched on. Loving God begins with knowing God. We need to to love God. We need to know God. And I know it's a cliche, but to know him is to love him. It's true. So We need to seek to know God, and the more we know God, the more we will love him. And we can know God through his word, through prayer, through seeking to spend time with him and to build an ever-deepening relationship. So the first thing is we need to know God, and the more we know God, the more we will be able to love God, number one. Number two is, is related to the first thing, but 
loving God really begins with knowing God's love for us first. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. All we really do, if you think about it, is love God back because God has been loving us since before we were even born and he loves us still. But it's about us knowing that God loves us so much that he gave his only son for us. It's about knowing that that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be at peace with God. And once we know God's amazing love for us, once that love penetrates the deepest part of our heart and touches who we truly are, love for God naturally begins to flow forth from us. So number two, loving God really begins with knowing God's love. And, and, and I hope that you know God's love for you. If you haven't experienced that, I want to encourage you to reach out for that. After the service, there's going to be some people over here ready to pray, and I'd encourage you to go and be prayed that you would know that because it's the, uh, it's the heart of our faith, knowing and loving God. So number three, remember what Jesus said. He said, loving God um, is the greatest commandment. It's the most important thing. Loving God means making him first in our hearts and our lives, making him the most important thing in our lives. So loving God sometimes means that we're going to need to rearrange our priorities. Because unless we proactively decide to make God first in our heart, something else will slip into that position and become the most important thing. We'll we'll have that God position in our life that only God deserves, that only God is able to fulfill truly that position in our life in the way that it should be. So we need to make God first above all other things. And the great news of that is that when God is first, when God is our first priority, God then helps us to be everything else that we should be. Every other priority that we have is enhanced when God is first. When God is first, then I am called to be the best father I can be by God, the best employee, the best friend. God, that priority of God informs every other priority, inf- orients everything else that we do. If anything else is in that slot, it will not do that. It will not have that effect. It will not touch our lives fully in the way that making God number one will. Fourth, Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Actually, in in Luke, Jesus adds strength to the equation, heart, uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, All of these four words, you could actually spend some time discussing how each of them explains the way that we should love God. But I actually think Jesus' greater point here is what they amount to together. Because what Jesus, I think, is saying overall is that God doesn't want some little slice of our life, some little extra portion, what's left over a few hours on Sunday morning or something. God wants it all. God wants all of us. Heart, mind, soul, and strength are meant to cover the bases. Everything that we have, everything that we are, God wants to be a part of all of that. And truly loving God is making him number one and seeking to love him with all that we are. It's about making every thought and feeling, every word and action 
reflect the word, of, reflect God as much as we can. It's about loving God in the heart of everything that we say and do. So the last thing is this. The fifth thing comes from John 14, 15, our last scripture. And really, I've, it's been implied in, in what Melinda said and what I've said in a couple of places. But um, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And what this verse is really about is that if we're going to love God, then we need to live for him. If we're going to love God, then we need to live for him. We need to live his way. And, it, and again, we need to remember that God doesn't need things. He doesn't need us to live this way somehow for his benefit. But it's what we need to do to love him well, to love him in the way that we should, and again, when we keep his commandments, not only does it show our love for God, but it means that we're living the best way that we can. The benefit is for us as well. So once upon a time, long, long ago, there was a bishop who served in a town, and he was a man of great faith and learning, and, and he became well-known in his town. People praised him for his ability to preach and to teach, and he had great notoriety, and his fame began to spread, and pretty soon his fame reached the Vatican, and the Pope sent a letter to this distant country saying that he wanted him to come for an audience, and this uh, town was overjoyed that, that their local bishop had received such notoriety. They thought, how great that someone from our town is achieving such great things, and even the bishop himself became kind of self-important, kind of like, look at me. The Pope wants to talk to me, you know? And so when it was time to board the ship to go to Rome and go to the Vatican, there was a big parade and the people were swelled with pride for themselves and the bishop was swelled for pride with himself. And so the, the ship set sail and as they were sailing through the sea after a couple of days, one day they saw an island off in the distance and the captain said, oh, that little island, let me tell you about it. On that island, there's the home of three hermits and they are said to be the holiest men in the world. Well, of course, hearing that tweaked the bishop's ego, right? Because he's the man, right? It also piqued his interest. And so he said to the captain, can we stop and I can visit these hermits? And the wind had been with their sails, so the captain said, yeah, we have time for a visit. We can do that. So they stopped, and the bishop got on a rowboat with his uh, flowing robes and his entourage, and they went to this uh, island. And the minute that he stepped on the sand, these three hermits came up, and they just bowed before the bishop he blessed them, and he said to them, what do you spend your time doing on this, on this desolate island? And they said, we spend our time seeking to love God better. Um, and he responded to them, well, what are you studying? And they, they didn't know how to respond to that question, studying. They didn't, they didn't really have an answer. And so the bishop thought to himself, what a bunch of simpletons. I don't have time for these guys. And he's getting ready to leave. And he says, well, look, let's just say the Lord's prayer together. And, and, and he says it with a yawn, you know. Um, but again, the, the, the hermits were kind of bewildered. They didn't really know the Lord's prayer. And he's like, how do you not know the Lord's prayer? How do you worship the Lord at all? And, and, and they, were, they were humbled and they felt bad. And, and they said to him, um, oh, sir, if you would help us to love God more, it would please us to learn. 
And so the bishop patronizingly said, all right, I'll teach you the Lord's Prayer before I go. And so he had them repeat the prayer, and he sat there for several hours. They were quite slow learners, and he was very exasperated, but at the end, each of, them could, each of these hermits could stumble through the Lord's Prayer. And then the bishop got up quickly, said a prayer over them, and he took off to the ship. And when he boarded the ship, the captain said, well, how did it go? And he said, they're just a bunch of idiots, morons. It was a waste of my time. Let's go. And so they began to set sail. But as they set sail, one of the sailors shouted out something incredible. He said, ahoy, men off the starboard bow. And here came the three hermits walking on the water to the ship. And they got on board the ship. And when they did, they went to the bishop and they said, Your Excellency, we desire for you to teach us how to love the Savior more, but we are ashamed to say that we have forgotten the last line of the prayer that you taught us. Will you please teach it to us again? And then the bishop, humbled to his core, fell to his knees before the hermits and he said, My brothers, I have nothing to teach you. Give me your blessing so that I may go in peace. Now, the point of this story is not, if we love God enough, we'll be able to walk on water. That's probably not going to happen. I hope it does, but that's probably not going to happen. But the point of this story is that true spirituality doesn't come from how much you know about God. It doesn't come from having a position in the church like elder or deacon or bishop or the pope or whatever. It doesn't come from having religious degrees. It doesn't come from other people thinking that you're very important 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, in fact, says knowledge tends to puff people up, but it says this, whoever loves God is known by God. You see, true spirituality comes from simply loving God. And that's something that every single one of us can do from childhood to old age. So let us do it. May we seek to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our minds. Amen.